This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the Deep Dives podcast here on the No Ceilings NBA podcast network. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson, and today we have the last version of our frequently occurring Rookie Ladder podcast. So I'm here, of course, with the author of the Rookie Ladder articles for NoCeilingsNBA.com, Nathan Grubel. Nathan, how are you doing this fine afternoon? Oh, Nick, it is it is a busy season for us, right? It, it is peak draft season, so what better way to spend peak draft season than to actually reflect on something that does not involve the draft? and talk about the NBA's best rookies from the 2022-23 season. Yeah, it's interesting because only one of these players is still playing basketball. We, you know, spoiler alert on which one. I think uh, I think we're both aware of who we're talking about here, but I'm glad that he at least made the list after you had him at 17th right. on the <laughs> I'm I'm messing. I'm messing around. But <laughs> let's start off with the top of the list and this is an interesting one to me because you, you know, little behind the scenes discussion here, you had brought up the possibility of this player maybe not ending up at number one on your final rookie ladder, but you did end up putting him at the top of the list. And I think it's much deserved. And based on how we've seen the voting go so far, it seems like the vast majority of awards voters agree with you that Paulo Boncaro deserves to win the NBA Rookie of the Year award. So let's get started with him. Why did you end up having Paulo at number one on your list? So I was back and forth, as I mentioned, in not only our No Singles group chat, but I also kind of put it out there on social media a little bit that maybe I was going to swing another direction in the Rookie of the Year race. But I landed with Paolo because I feel like it would have been unfair if I didn't give him the number one spot. I, I get that the efficiency across the board has been a bit of a concern through his rookie year. And it's definitely something that a lot of voters would come back to if they were to go a different direction with rookie of the year. But if I'm going to bump up one player in particular, who we'll get to a little bit later on in this ranking and make sure that he would be part of my all rookie first team ballot by that criteria of embracing the role that you were thrust into and making the most of it, why would I not award Paolo in, in that same way, right? And give him the number one award at, for, for this rookie ballot because Paolo had to do the most for the Orlando Magic, right? He was their number one primary shot creator. He was the guy that defenses were keyed in on every single possession. And he dealt with that, in, in, in my opinion, spectacularly. Maybe, maybe not, maybe he could have made some more shots across the board. Maybe he could have played better defense as, as the year ultimately went on. But for being the guy who had to create his own shot, create shots for others out of a myriad of play types and still manage to score 20 points per game as a rookie on 43% shooting from the field, scoring over 20 points per game 40 times 
as a rookie out of 72 games played. Nick, that that is ridiculous, right? You we've had so many conversations, not only on this podcast, but outside of our, our podcast feed in general about how difficult it is for rookies to make transitions to the NBA because it's a big part of what we do as scouts for no ceilings. We have to project performance past a rookie year, sure, but we have to project them to a role that actually fits for them to play minutes their first year in the NBA. So when most of the time it's a challenge to have somebody come in and play 14, 16, 18 minutes a night doing like two or three things on the floor at once, Paolo was involved in every single play type he could have been involved in in synergy. And even though the results by percentile rankings weren't what we would probably want them to be for someone we're projecting as a multi-time all-star, the fact that he made it through that gauntlet and did it while playing 72 games, almost 34 minutes a night on a team in the Eastern Conference that, yeah, they finished where they did in the lottery standings, but they were actually competitive for the majority of the season in the East. That to me says... Paolo Bencaro is that player who we thought he was going to be early on. And to me, he he did more with what he was given than a lot of the other players in his rookie class, just based on expectations. That's why we'll go with him number one. I'm very glad that you brought up the competitive nature of the Orlando Magic. Now, in their last 57 games, they went 29 and 28. Now, of course, you can't just, you know, throw out the first 25 games of the season, right? Those those happened. You know, we can't ignore that those happened, and they went 5 and 20 in those games. So, you know, not great, but... I mean, from, you know, that 20th loss of the season on, right, from basically the start of December to the end of the year, this was a 500 team, right? And they were not a 500, they were not going to be a 500 team without Paolo Bancaro running the show for them. And I mean, we saw a spectacular year two from Franz Wagner after a really special year one from Franz Wagner. And it seems pretty clear that those two are going to be the primary building blocks for the Orlando Magic going forward. But you know, again, it's interesting. A lot of the sort of discussion around Paulo in the negative sense, you know, really started happening around February when he had just an absolutely brutal month efficiency-wise, made one of his 33 three-point attempts, which is not not what you're looking for. You know, not not exactly the best number from long range, but... Surprise, you know, he looked like a rookie in, for, for a month of the season. Surprise, surprise. Surprise, <laughs> surprise. Yeah, but, you know, it's interesting because that sort of dovetails with, you know, the team actually doing a lot better, right? Like, you know, the first 25 games, Paulo was on an absolute tear. You know, it was him and Benedict Matherin were the two guys that we were talking about at the top of the Rookie of the Year race. And then, you know, a lot of the questions around Paulo started coming up, you know, right around All-Star break, like right around before and after All-Star break. And even though his efficiency was not exactly where he would want it to be, especially from long range, the team itself, you know, again, they were and above 500 team after their absolutely god-awful start. And, you know, Paulo played a huge part in that. He he played a huge part in it. The other big factor, I would say, with that too, Nick, was that around my birthday, February 1st, was not only when Paolo was coming in and out of one of his slumps in his rookie season, but it was also when he got to turn over more of the keys to the offense to the point guard who should have had the ball in his hands the entire time. But obviously, obviously it's part of his career has been derailed a little bit to health concerns, but Markel Fultz for three months of that regular season was absolutely phenomenal on both sides of the ball, but particularly as a point guard with how he has continued to reemerge as a legitimate scoring threat from that position on top of being an athletic playmaker on top of captaining the defense at the point of attack and forcing turnovers and creating opportunities for everyone else. It kind of put 
Paolo in more of a secondary role and Franz in a tertiary role. And I think when you ask them to do a little bit less, but you still gave them plenty of opportunities within the play types where they're comfortable operating in, the game became easier for those two guys with Fultz being who we kind of thought Markel Fultz could be all along. And that's really when you saw the mad, this magic team take a rise. And that that's not to take away from Paolo in the slightest, it's when you don't have as much responsibility to do every single little thing on the floor and you can be at times a play finisher versus a creator, generally you're going to see good things happen back for you. And around when all three of those guys really started to get their best chemistry together, that's when we saw Paolo come back and, and really through March and April, he was, he was his quote unquote dominant rookie self from a scoring perspective. It's fascinating because I think the two best skills sort of relative to their position slash relative to their size for both Franz and Paulo is their passing. Like these are two, you know, forward slash bigs who are excellent playmakers. But, you know, part of it, as you mentioned, is just them getting to slide down where Paulo is not the be all and end all of the offense, but he's a secondary creator. You know, Mark L. Fultz runs the initial action and if there's a second side pick and roll. Paulo is running that. If it's, you know, post up into a pass, Paulo can you know, get the ball, keep the offense humming. And, you know, same deal with Franz. You know, it allows the offense as a whole to function a lot more democratically when it's not just, all right, we're giving the ball to Paulo every possession. He's taking the ball up. He's creating the offense. You know, mm -hmm. it gives him better windows to do some of the incredible scoring things that he can do rather than just, you know, he's an exceptional playmaker, but there's a difference between really good playmaker for his size and the entirety of and, the playmaking. And out of those same play types and actions that you were referencing, Nick, what is the end result to most of those play types that we would expect it to be for a 6'10 forward? Somewhere diving towards the basket, finishing around the basket, getting more efficient looks. He was one of the worst pull-up jump shooters in the NBA this season, but when you actually got him involved within, I don't want to say easier offense, but offense better suited toward his physical build and skill set, we, we we saw Paolo come back in a, in a big way for, for three months of the season. Before we wrap up the Paulo section, let's talk quickly about the defense. And this is particularly interesting to me because the thing that stood out the most when we saw him at Summer League was just how massive this dude is. Like, yeah. you know, he's listed at 6'10", but he looked more like a seven-footer out there. And there were a number of possessions when he was guarding Keegan Murray and he just completely walled Keegan up. Now, you know, Keegan ended up having some moments in that Magic Kings game later on in the evening, but, you know, earlier on, it was a lot of Paulo just stonewalling him. And it's interesting because, you know, he wasn't exactly great on defense. I wouldn't say that he reached the level of being average defensively, but no. he wasn't awful either. And I think, you know, especially when we're talking about rookies, right? Like, you know, even the best defensive rookies outside of maybe like Davion Mitchell and Herb Jones, they struggle at least, you know, early on in their NBA careers, if not the entirety of their rookie year, then at least the first few months of the season. And that's sort of where we're at with Paulo, you know, like he has the size and the lateral mobility and the, quickness to be you know as you mentioned in the piece you know get to the point where at bare minimum he's an average defender and i wouldn't say he was quite there during his rookie year but i think we saw enough signs to be able to project that you know especially if he has a slightly lighter load on offense than he did the first couple months of the season he could get to the point where he's at least solid defensively and you know given what he does on offense that's really all he needs to be on that end it's amazing what happens when you are six foot ten, two hundred fifty pounds, and you aren't exactly the type of player that other teams are going to want want to hunt in in mismatches to a certain extent, right? So, if you are that physical presence that can body someone else up, 
guard someone wall and one one on one. You mentioned walling somebody off. Yeah, if you aren't as skillful of a driver or, or that legitimately, you know, shot out of a cannon guy like a John Moran or Jay Nivey, yeah, Paolo can stay with you. He has the foot speed and the coordination to do that. But again, we're we're not looking for him to be a lockdown defender. You're just looking for him to find a way to impact the game defensively where he's in a help role, where he's in a position with two other bigs, essentially, right? So he's either playing alongside like a Wendell Carter or a Bull Bull, and even when he's alongside one of those guys, it's Franz Wagner on his other side, who's also a very large man in himself. And it's it's something that I've talked about in other respects, and it's something I referenced on Draft Deeper when talking about the Utah Jazz. When you put three six foot ten to seven foot guys on the floor together the court just shrinks naturally by default and that helps somebody like him who is still trying to learn the ins and outs of the nba game adjust to the speed of the nba game but as he does as he gets more aware of what's going on around him and in certain off-ball actions he will become a better defender by default just because of his physical stature and the other types of players that he's playing alongside and then when you get the offensive value on top of it like you referenced you, you don't need him to be an above average defender. You need to have him just hover around that average mark, which I think he can do as he furthers along in his career. And if the offense really is that special where he's a primary shot creator, you're, you're living with that defense to get to, you know, the meat and bones of the evaluation, which is the offense. Let's move on to number two on the list. And as you mentioned, right at the top, Jalen Williams almost got your rookie of the year vote. And almost. It's very fitting, I think, because his season kind of dovetails pretty neatly with Paulo's, where Jalen was a bit of a slow starter, you know, both in terms of his efficiency and in terms of his playing time, in terms of his role for the Thunder. And, you know, right around that period in February where Paulo was really starting to, you know, fall off a bit in terms of his efficiency, especially his long range shooting, that was when Jalen Williams started to really pick it up. You know, he started. I mean, he started most of the games he played for the Thunder this season, but, you know, really he started scoring in higher volume. You know, he he was a solid defensive piece, but got better certainly as the season went along. And, you know, again, it's the kind of thing where, you know, he sort of started getting really hot right about when Paolo was, you know, falling off a bit. But, you know, even so with Williams, he had definitely, in my mind, the second best campaign of any rookie. And I'm I'm saying that, you know, with personal bias thrown as much to the side as I possibly can. But, you know, he had a spectacular season as well. And if Paulo had started falling off a month earlier and Jalen Williams had started, you know, heating up a month earlier, then it might be, you know, even more difficult of a conversation than it was for you. You you mentioned the arc. The Jalen Williams season took and that that to me that that is the story so if you just look at splits so let's let's cut out the two games in October and the three games in April let's look from November through March literally everything crescendos upwards in a positive direction so November he from November to March by March he's scoring the most points per game he's grabbing the most rebounds per game he's assisting on the most made buckets per game his shooting splits are up dramatically across the board his true shooting percentage is up almost actually not yeah almost eight percentage points higher his usage rate within the offense is up at 21 percent as opposed to 17.3 percent where it was in the month of november and then his offensive and defensive ratings are also dramatically different from where they were in november he he got more playing opportunity and time sure but really it's what he did with more of that opportunity that made me almost give him 
that rookie of the year award. I think we have referenced it on some past podcasts, Nick, when we've talked about J-Dub, friend of the No Ceilings program, J-Dub, but how he embraced a do-it-all role for the Oklahoma City Thunder. Did they need him to bring the ball at the core as a point forward? Check that box off. Did they need him to make plays for others in the half court? Check that box off. Did they need him to be a spot-up shooter or a catch-and-shoot guy to space the floor for everyone else? Check. Cut towards the basket. Did that better than than any rookie that, that I can remember evaluating in quite some time? His his court awareness playing off the ball is, is some of the best I've seen for a wing. Check. Uh, rebound well for his position. Guard multiple positions. All these different boxes you can check, like you're checking them for Paolo, you could also check them for Jalen Williams as well. Now, he was not the number one guy on his team offensively. You can make an argument. He probably wasn't even their number two guy in terms of attention and playmaking responsibility. You probably still give that to Josh Giddy. So at best, Jalen Williams is probably your third guy within the offense, but that's not to take away from him growing as a shot maker, as a playmaker, as a defender over the course of the season and doing what we want to see from rookies, which is we know you're not going to start out the best, but how are you going to finish the year? And nobody did that, in my opinion, better than Jalen Williams. There were a few in these rookie rankings who were close to being the best version of themselves and and really getting up to a level like Jalen Williams, a few that we'll talk about, but no one did it better, in my opinion, than Jalen Williams. It's really interesting because, you know, you talk about this sort of progression from him over the course of the season. And, you know, the first couple of months of the year, you know, basically the thing was, okay, he's, you know, been really efficient from two point range. He's a much better defender than your average rookie, but man, he just couldn't hit the ocean from deep the first couple of months of the year. And, you know, it's funny because of course, Paulo ended up having that same sort of stretch in February where he couldn't hit the ocean from deep, but you know, it was interesting because it started out with J-Dub being like, okay, you know, this is someone who can be efficient inside the arc, who's going to be a solid defensive piece sooner rather than later. And, you know, something I talk about all the time on here to the point where I'm sure people are fed up of hearing me talk about it is, you know, the idea of multiple different ways to earn your way into a rotation, right? If you're not just purely a three-point shooter, you know, if you're someone who can, you know, be a secondary playmaker on offense and also, you know, slide up and down positionally defensively. I mean, there were a number of times this season when Jalen Williams was like basically the four for the Thunder. And part of that is because yeah. they're... Part of that is because their regular rotation is tiny, which, you know, hopefully will change next season with Chet Holmgren coming back into the fold. But even so, I mean, you know, this is like a 21-year-old rookie who's basically being told, yeah, okay, you know, you're 6'6", shooting guard size, but we're going to move you to the four because that's the best look for us. And he handled that quite capably, which, you know, again, most rookies are somewhere between terrible to below average defensively. And the fact that Jalen Williams could be argued as an above average defender already is a really strong sign for where his career is going. And and here's the other thing about his seasonal progression and where he ended up at. So when a lot of these rookies are on these younger teams, right, they're, they're not going to be involved in as many high leverage games later on in the season. This will be their time to play the younger guys, to, to give them some more developmental reps because these other good to great teams that are going up against them on a night to night basis. Those, those are used by default. I hate to say it, but it's true as some of their like quote unquote off nights. Right. And so some of those games, 
you, you have to be very careful and worry about some of the production for some of these rookies. We uh, Maxwell has the best phrase for it. He calls it like Mickey Mouse March. <laughs> and I think that's like one of the best phrases that, that we've ever used in no ceilings. But like, it's true. Like you really have to be wary of the production, but Jalen Williams playing for the Oklahoma city thunder, Nick, they were trying to get in the playoffs. Every single game mattered to them, particularly in a Western conference where they played a lion's share of their season in that February, March and into April time slate where those games mattered because the positioning race for getting in the playoffs was so tight, right? Like literally a few games are separating some of those teams to, to figure their way into the play-in tournament or maybe even get up past the play-in tournament. Like all of those games were mattering for the Oklahoma City Thunder. And when those games mattered most in terms of do or die, do we get into the play-in or not, that's when Jalen Williams played his best basketball. And how many other rookies that we can talk about in these rankings were – affecting, impacting winning games at the highest level. I can think of only one other name. I know mm-hmm. you're, 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 mm-hmm. you're going to go crazy when we talk about it, but I'm so, I can think of only one other name who was in that conversation, and that, that just speaks even more so as to, yeah, Jalen Williams may have had his best production in March, and we have to be careful about how we evaluate certain rookies and young players in March, but it wasn't the same situation for him. His team needed him to show up in a big way. And he did. You mentioned the three-point percentage. How about him getting to the line? Like Mm -hmm. almost double the amount of times that he had prior, like in some of his better months, quote-unquote, right? So free throw attempts in January, 21 free throw attempts, 36 free throw attempts in February, and then all the way up to 64 free throw attempts in March where he hit nearly 88% of those shots. Like talk about not only asserting yourself within the offense from a shot-making perspective, but from a I'm going to do whatever it takes to help my team win games in the right way perspective. That's what Jalen Williams did in the biggest moments. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back right after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So before we wrap things up here on Jalen Williams, I did just want to quickly, you know, sort of go through some of the offensive stuff with him. I think we've hit on a lot of the defensive stuff, but I think, you know, the one area we haven't talked about maybe as much as we should is his playmaking. I mean, this is a guy playing on a team with, you know, arguably, you know, if not an all NBA guys, then maybe even an MVP candidate to some in Shea Gilgis Alexander. And, you know, as close as a six, eight guy can get to a pure point guard in Josh Giddy, right? You know, this is a guy who did not have the ball in his hands anywhere near as much as Paulo did. And yet he did a whole lot of creation for this thunder offense in a way that made a lot of their lineup constructions make sense in a way that they wouldn't have without someone like J-Dub on the floor. 
So in that November through March stretch, he had no less than 38 assists in a month. So that means that, no, he didn't have the lion's share role of the offense to create for others. He didn't have that same type of burden, but he also wasn't walking away from games where he wasn't making an impact passing the ball. And when you're playing within a system like the Oklahoma City Thunder where ball movement constantly is prioritized, for him to be able to fit like a glove within that scheme and and demonstrate and say, hey, I am one of these guys who can make quick decisions. You want to put me in a give-and-go style offense? Let's do it. You want to have me run some pick and roll? Let's do it. You want to have me post up and then find guys out of a double? Let's do it. Like there, there, that to me, Nick, it's not just the assist piling up, but like literally what you were talking about, the types of plays in which he offered playmaking versatility and potential for, for him to come in and have that level of nuance and how to operate within that, that free flowing of offense like that in his rookie year, it's, it's, it's just remarkable. I, I don't know if I feel like I hit on some of the defense enough. I won't say that he's like, well, he was spectacular necessarily on that end, but I think he proved that he could handle more than we initially thought of because of his physical tools, his measurables, and then obviously his will again to impact winning basketball. It's it's more so you can dissect different parts, but really you can put it all together and say, what didn't he do to help his team win games on a night-to-night basis? I mean, you say in the article, I'm just going to quote you directly here, high IQ, low mistake players who can dribble, pass, shoot, and defend, have all-star upside, even if they aren't super athletes with crazy handles, right? Yes. You know, that's 100% true. But but you know what's crazy, though, Nick, is that we were all high on him and no ceilings. We we absolutely, we we were some of J-Dub's biggest fans, that draft cycle. Did any of us walk away before that draft and say that, like, we thought he was going to be a star? In the NBA, I don't. Think I don't think any of us thought he would be the best draft pick on his own team. I. <laughs> so that that to, like that's that's again another reference as to how far he's come. Like I saw a really good complimentary piece. Someone who, if you're a franchise who just desperately needs to get guys in the room who know how to play the game the right way, you take someone like Jalen Williams, regardless of if you think you're taking him too high, whatever the case may be. I still remember when I did one of those first mock drafts last cycle and. I was picking for the Hornets and I had like pick 15. I took Jalen Williams and, and the guys who I was doing the mock with, like they gave me uh, a little bit of a raised eyebrow, but I was like, listen, like the Charlotte Hornets, they are not a good basketball team. They have not been a good basketball franchise. They just need guys who can come in and impact winning in the right ways. And clearly the Oklahoma city thunder got that message in their own evaluations for him. And, and they, they looked at Jalen Williams and they said, what box doesn't he check? right? Like he can dribble, he can pass, he can shoot. As I mentioned, he can defend. You read that quote beautifully, but it's so true. He may not fit in this perfect box of what we think an NBA superstar looks like, but the more skill you have at a certain size in the NBA, the better off you are and the higher chance you have of reaching an even higher ceiling than what everyone thought you had when, when they were looking to draft you. It's really funny because we just spent, you know, 10 minutes talking about him as a sideshow repeatedly during the Paul Boncara section. But there's a lot of Franz Wagner there in the idea of a rookie who we all expected coming in. Okay, this is going to be a great complimentary piece, a great gap filler, you know, someone who can be a really solid fourth option on offense. And Franz Wagner shows up and year one, he's like a 15 point a game scorer. (laughs) Exactly. Year one, he's a 15 point a game scorer. Year two, he's an 18 point a game scorer, right? It's like, oh. Okay, he's a little bit more than just a complimentary guy, and I will fully admit to being 
quite high on Franz Wagner in his draft class. I believe I had him seventh on my final board. And even so, it was like right away from year one, it's like, okay, this guy is a lot more than we thought he was. He's a lot more than just a complimentary piece and I, very similar to what Jalen Williams showed. I didn't have a good cop for Jalen Williams, but I will say to, to the Franz Wagner piece before we moved on, I, I used like a high-end ceiling comp for Franz as like a Gordon Hayward. And mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't use that name lightly because the best of Gordon Hayward was a top five small forward in the NBA. And like, did I actually think that Franz could hit that type of ceiling? I obviously thought it was possible if we're going to throw the name out, but I'm not betting on something like that to happen. So for for that for we to, us to be in the same situation with Jalen Williams is it, it, it's pretty remarkable. Let's move on to number three on the list and. I don't think I was more wrong about any player in last year's draft class than I was about Walker Kessler. I was very worried that he was going to be absolute food in any sort of, you know, switching situation. And instead, it turns out his feet were not as slow as I was worried about. And his ability to absolutely destroy worlds in drop was much, much higher than I rated for him, even though, you know, probably should have seen that given how ridiculous of a shot blocker he was at Auburn. But you know, again, I don't think I was more wrong about anyone in last year's class than Walker Kessler. And credit to him, he had a remarkable season for the Utah Jazz. Walker Kessler. I with Nick, I, I at one point I had him in the 20s on my draft board. And even though that still wouldn't have been correct, I would have felt much better about it had I talked myself out of him and then they up slotting him in the 40s on, on, on my personal board. Just because I looked at all these different types of players and I thought about in, in, in my imaginative sense, if these guys all turn out to be the best version of themselves, aren't they technically more valuable to have on your roster than somebody like a Walker Kessler? And boy, boy, was I as wrong as you were, Nick. And, and I think this sentence in my article specifically sums it up right here. And I said, while Kessler isn't exactly the type of switchable big the league seems to covet nowadays, elite drop coverage centers are still incredibly effective in the right schemes. And that that sums it up perfectly. He was highly effective as a deep drop big because they first of all they they ran a scheme in which if somebody got past them they were looking to funnel matchups specifically towards Kessler and if guards or wings didn't play against Kessler in the right way which is if you get any sort if you're able to take any sort of space around Kessler and pull up and hit a shot in the mid-range you have to do it because if you try and go at Kessler, whether you're trying to contort or extend or finish around him or go into his body, whatever the case may be, he's going to block your shot. He's going to eat your contact. He's going to eat your lunch, eat your lunch, take your lunch money, and he's going to block your shot. And that's what he did repeatedly throughout this NBA season. Nick, he finished fourth in the NBA in total block shots. Fourth as a rookie. Like I... I get that this class may not have like five guys coming out of it who are the level of like a Luka Doncic or even like a Trey Young right now, for for example, right? Like we we look at that draft class as being absolutely loaded with some of the talent SGA that we were talking about with the Thunder. But oh my gosh, the, the level of production that did come from this draft class with a guy like Paolo who scored 20 points per game as a rookie, with Walker Kessler who was fourth in the league in block shots with your guy who we're going to get to next after Walker and Keegan Murray who set a rookie record for three pointers made like these are legitimate historical feats that are happening for rookies. And Walker Kessler was able to live up to the hype and deliver for a team that again, we're talking about if you can in any way, shape or form impact winning as a rookie, I'm going to value you for my all rookie ballots. And the Utah jazz 
yeah, they're currently slotted at ninth in the lottery race. But for a lot of the season, we're looking around and going, oh shit, are the Utah Jazz actually a playoff team in the Western Conference after trading away their two best players before the year started and then effectively the third best player by the trade deadline? Are they actually still going to be in the race for a play-in or a playoff spot? And a lot of it was because they had that guy down low, Manning, and 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 covering up for everyone's mistakes, right? Because you look at guys like Colin Sexton, Jordan Clarkson, I know Lowry Markkinen became an all-star caliber player on offense, but Lowry Markkinen, Kelly Olynyk, who of those guys are going to effectively stop the ball at the point of attack? None of them, right? So <laughs> That would be zero, yes. So the fact that the Utah Jazz still ended up where they did defensively on the year and remain as competitive as they did, it's all credit to Walker Kessler and kudos to him for reminding us that if you're seven feet tall, you can swallow up matchups around the basket you are not a, a complete paperweight in, in, in switching anywhere around the perimeter, and you can finish at an incredibly high level, 70.2 true shooting percentage, and you, you're, you're, like I said, you're swatting all the shots that you are, you're going to be a really effective player in the NBA. Maybe we need to take some of that back to our own evaluations coming into this draft. So like maybe, maybe a big like Walker Kessler makes you rethink some of your draft philosophy to an extent when we're talking about big men. All right, the moment that I have been waiting for for almost 35 minutes now. Let's talk about Keegan Murray and how he has played for the Sacramento Kings. It's It's been a remarkably fun season in Sacramento. I was fortunate enough to be present for them lighting the beam after game one of the playoffs. Yes, the Kings of all teams, the Sacramento oh, Kings hosted a team in the playoffs, not just in the playoffs, but hosted a team in the playoffs. And you mentioned in passing earlier, but Keegan Murray broke the rookie record for three-pointers made, and he did it on like 100 fewer three-point attempts than the previous record holder, Donovan Mitchell, had. He hit 200 triples as a rookie. He started all but the first two games of the season, you know, only missed two games the entire year, 45, 41, 77 shooting splits. And, you know, we talked about this on a couple of the previous editions of the rookie ladder, but... You know, even though his sort of counting stats were very similar, you know, towards the end of the year than they were towards the start of the year, he really got a lot more responsibility down the stretch run of the season, you know, was trusted a lot more to not just shoot whenever the ball touches hands, but to make plays. You know, he got much better on the defensive end. I wouldn't say he got to the point where he was a good defender by any stretch, but, you know, he was very tough to watch on defense earlier in the season, and he really figured out a lot as the season went along, so... I'm very glad that he ended up at fourth on your rookie ladder. You know, after the last edition, I was expecting him to end up at 27th, but here we are. He's, he's in the top five. He's on your all rookie first team. So, you know, I could talk about Keegan Murray all day, so I'll stop myself here. What were your thoughts on Keegan and why'd you end up with him fourth overall on your board? I mean, in terms of why he ended up where he did, you kind of hit on, on all the points essentially for me. So I, but I expected, I expected nothing less from, from our resident Sacramento Kings fan here at no ceilings. But I, I thought about having Keegan Murray, even as high as number three in, in the rookie ladder. At the end of the day, I, I, I couldn't put him ahead of Kessler. I, I couldn't do it, but I almost did because he played such a valuable role for a team that finished third in the Western conference. He was one of their legitimate floor spacers all year long. Didn't blink his efficiencies from outside really didn't dip at all throughout the course of the entire season, which is remarkable, right? Like you usually rookies go through some sort of extended shooting slump and maybe, maybe Keegan Murray had some nights where he was a little off 
shooting from the field, but he never really had one of those more egregious slumps that we can point to and say, well, his percentage could have been this, but because of these 10 to 15 to 20 games, it ended up actually being here. He, he didn't have that. He was a 40% three-point shooter through and through on the year. He was a spot-up guy. He was a movement shooter, catch-and-shoot game. You talked about how he became a little bit more involved on the offensive side of the ball, right? Him actually attempting some pick and rolls was awesome to see him getting involved in some of the DHO game, trying to mirror a little bit of what Sabonis was bringing to the table, him playing a little bit of two-man action with Fox and Herter. Like these are all things that I think we actually thought he could do at no ceilings, but for whatever reason, he was so undervalued throughout the process by some evaluators who just wanted to lean on the age. They wanted to lean on the fact that they didn't see a high defensive outcome for him. They wanted to lean on the fact that he had issues creating his own shot at Iowa. So he wasn't going to be able to do a lot of these different things in the NBA. And yet he kind of proved all of them wrong and said, listen, I'm, I'm good enough who I am now. And I'm going to prove that to you. And in proving that I'm going to keep earning the minutes on a good team where they're actually going to allow me to experiment and create and do more of those things that's going to allow me to have a higher upside in the future. And and Keegan Murray proved that he's going to be that player. Now, the one thing I will say, Nick, in defense of your Sacramento Kings, do not let anyone give you crap for, for your Keegan Murray love just because he hasn't performed in these two playoff games so far for the Kings. He is a rookie. He was going to struggle in the playoffs period, but the fact that Unfortunately, his first playoff series had to come against the defending champs, Golden State Warriors. There's only so much that you can ask of him to do. But the fact that he had the regular season that he did, don't let any of the trolls take away the season he had just because he's only played 16 minutes in two straight playoff games. I'm with you. I'm going to defend Keegan Murray. I, I wasn't planning on giving up on him, but thank you for the added support there. <laughs> it's it's interesting. He struggled a bit in November. There were some personal issues with his family that were going on during that time he did you know struggle a bit shooting wise in november but i mean outside of november you know five games in october 40 percent from three 14 games in december 46 percent from three 15 games in january 49.5 percent from three february 38 percent march 40 percent april 44 percent the playmaking stuff i think you know the easiest way to see that is in 14 games in december he had nine assists in five games in april he had nine assists he seven assists in October, 10 in November, nine in December, 19 in January, 23 in February, 21 in March. Now just raw assist numbers doesn't necessarily tell the story of, you know, how involved someone was in the playmaking for a team, but you know, just on the most basic possible level, you look at those numbers like, Hmm, he played nearly three times as many games in December and had exactly as many assists as he did in those five games in April. You know, that does tell us a little bit of something about, you know, how involved he is in making plays for others rather than just, again, shooting the ball every time it touches his hands, which, you know, to be fair, I mean, he shot 46% from deep in December, right? It's not like it was going badly for him just shooting the ball every time it touched his hands, but it does say something at least about how much more involved he was in the playmaking side of the offense rather than just putting up three-pointers. And that wasn't his role. They didn't need him to do that. But when he caught the ball and he couldn't immediately shoot it, are you going to be able to make the the quick decision and process the game at a rapid rate to where you're going to kick the ball to where it needs to go next? And he proved at the very least that he could do that, which, oh, by the way, he proved enough of it on the tape at Iowa. Like the, the Keegan Murray that we saw in Sacramento, to me, really wasn't that much different from the Keegan Murray that I got to watch up close and personal with Corey at, at, at Iowa when we were at that Iowa Rutgers game or when I was watching him on tape last year. He translated beautifully to the NBA in, in, in most regards. Now he will, 
he will continue to clean up, clean up some of his mistakes. I agree with you that throughout the season got much better in terms of off ball defense on the ball. I think he still needs to, you know, a little bit of film study, a little bit of KYP, a little bit of, I need to be better at anticipating where the ball handler is going to go and where he's going to move so that I can get to that spot first and ultimately wall him off. There are some of those things where he can be better at, but all in all as a whole, everyone was screaming for the Kings to take the best player available in that draft, who was Jay Nivey. And we've talked about it on multiple podcasts now, and it's the perfect way to end the Keegan Murray conversation. The Kings stuck to their guns. They took the guy who they thought was going to be the best fit. And even if Jay Nivey, who we're going to talk about next, has a quote-unquote higher ceiling, would have the Kings seen the same results with him on the team this year as opposed to having Keegan Murray, who was a 40-plus three-point shooter for the majority of the season when Ivy ended up being a a league average or slightly below league average three-point shooter on the year on certainly less volume? I don't know the answer to that, especially when you factor in how much poorer Ivy's been on the defensive end than Murray. So I, I think all in all, you guys made the right selection for. So let's use that, in fact, as a springboard to move on to the Jaden Ivey discussion. And, you know, when Rucker and I wrote about the Keegan-Murray dilemma last year for the Kings, you know, basically the hypothesis was ultimately this is a good dilemma for them to have, right? You're If you're picking between Keegan-Murray and Jaden Ivey, you know, I think it seems pretty clear to me anyway that it worked out as best as it could for both sides, that, you know, Jaden Ivey ended up in a situation where he got a bit more opportunities with the ball in his hands than he would have in Sacramento. And Mm -hmm. Keegan Murray, in turn, you know, ended up on a team that, you know, had a better offensive context around him to, you know, enable him to be the best version of himself that we saw throughout this year. But, I mean, with Jaden Ivey, you know, he struggled with his shooting, especially earlier on in the season. But as you mentioned, he got to the point by the end of the season where he was, you know, a little below league average, but not well below league average like he was yep. the first couple months of the year. And he got to do a lot with Cade Cunningham, missing a ton of time in Detroit, which, you know, hopefully will yep. be helpful for his development going forward. The defense, again, uh, we don't need to mention the defense in any particular detail, but, you know, <laughs> offensively, he ultimately ended up having a bigger role than I think people anticipated to start the season. And for the most part, he did pretty well in that role. As I kind of said in the piece, I really enjoyed watching Ivy's progression as a point guard. And for context, again, as you mentioned, he was drafted to the Detroit Pistons to be a shooting guard to pair alongside the guy who we thought would have the lion's share of the usage and and have the ball in his hands almost exclusively in Cade Cunningham, right? You wanted Ivy to be the perfect complement to him Cunningham isn't as explosive a player. He's more of a, I'm going to size someone up and I'm going to get to my shot, or I'm going to use that to my advantage to lure the defense in to find another guy who's moving off the ball. And then Jay Nivey is exactly that. He's that athletic disruptor who he can cut. He can move all over the floor. He can put pressure on the rim. He's just a different style of player. But then you take Cade Cunningham out of the equation because he got hurt. And now you're throwing Jay Nivey into the situation where now he is the point guard for the Detroit Pistons and all of these concerns that evaluators had about his game. Oh, he's, he's not this high level pick and roll creator, or he's not this traditional point guard. He's going to have to grow into this type of role. Well, he had to grow into that role on the fly, right? He had to learn on the job. And I actually think he did a great job of of learning on the fly. And it comes really back to, and again, I, I didn't pull a ton of numbers to showcase this particular in my piece, but when you just watch the tape back of him as a pull-up jump shooter in certain situation, whether whether it's coming off a screen, right, operating out of that pick-and-roll set at the top, whether it's coming off another action, catching the ball, then turning, going to his right, 
you know, fading away from, from the mid range, that mid range pull-up shot where I actually thought it was borderline, borderline awful in, in college at Purdue. I really didn't think the comfort level or any of it was there. Boy, did he change a lot of that around to the point where that actually became a go-to shot for him at certain times later on in this season. So his operation of the pick and roll, his pacing out of that set, his vision out of that set to look beyond just that first read and actually get to a second level of the defense and make a little bit more of an advanced read and being able to take space and make the most of it in terms of the pull-up jump shooting, him improving as a three-point shooter, particularly when defenders went under on screens and gave him those opportunities to be able to shoot. All of these different things that weren't strengths to his game in the scouting report when he was coming into Detroit as a draft pick now all of a sudden they became real parts of his game at the NBA level, not just another year of development in college. So it's for those reasons why, and I know there, there's some other names that made my second team, not my first, like Benedict Matherin did not make my first team. Andrew Nemhard did not make my first team. I had Jay Nivey as that fifth guy because I just loved watching the progression arc for him as a player, similarly to what I saw from somebody like a Jalen Williams, for example. So that that's why I had to feel like I had to award him as the fifth guy on my first team. Yeah, his in-between game was my second biggest concern with Ivy coming out of the draft with the number one being the defense. And I'm not going to say that my you know concerns about his defense were entirely incorrect exactly, but I mean... still awful on defense, don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I, 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 again, I wasn't going to you know hit it that hard, but okay, fair enough. You're, you're not wrong, certainly. But, you know, some of the concerns about his ability to be effective when he is stopped before he gets all the way to the rim, you know, inside the three-point line, yeah. those, were, those were definitely big concerns for me and he showed a lot more than I expected in his in-between game, you know, in his mid-range game than I expected heading into the season. And that's huge for him, you know, because that was a big concern heading into the year. Yep. A hundred percent. So Jay Nivey, I, I know I might've just roasted your defense a little bit, but trust me, your, your offense is well on the up and up. And I am truly impressed with the type of point guard that you've molded yourself into from start to finish. So consider me a fan of what the Pistons are building out there in Detroit. Let's move on to the player who I was the second most wrong about in last year's draft class behind Walker Kessler. I was not a big Andrew Nemhard believer. I thought that, you know, he could maybe be like an effective third string point guard or, you know, maybe even an effective backup point guard someday. And in his rookie season, he started 63 of 75 games. So clearly that was, you know, throw that completely out the window. But you did end up putting Nemhart ahead of Benedict Matherin on these rankings, which, you know, spoiler alert, Benedict Matherin is up next at number seven. But I am curious about, you know, that decision because, you know, if we're talking about the first couple months of the season, you know, Benedict Matherin was the number two guy in the rookie of the year voting. If we're talking about the first month, we're talking about the first months of the season, there were some people who would have had him ahead of Paulo, you know, because he had an absolutely electric start to the season. But, you know, as you say, you know, by the tape, you thought Nemard was a more effective player, a more impactful player on a possession-to-possession basis. And, you know, it's really interesting coming from a guy who was the first pick of the second round who I thought was a bit rich to be taken even that high. Clearly, I was dead wrong, but it is interesting to see how that sort of evolved for Nemhard over the course of the season. Well, let me ask you a question, and, and I don't know your answer to this question. I know you read my piece in editing it, and you understand why I wrote some of what I wrote. But if I ask you point blank, who who ended up actually 
not only being the more impactful rookie on their team, but I think developing in multiple ways and actually getting better over the course of the season. Are we sure that Benedict Matherin got any better by the end of his rookie year? Like, are, are we positive that that happened? Because I don't think it happened. And that's why, that's a big reason why I ended up putting them hard ahead of Matherin. But I'm curious as someone who has actually watched a, a good amount of the NBA, because you, you are a true fan of the NBA game. You pay attention to a lot of it. Do you think that Benedict Matherin actually got better from start to finish? So it's interesting. You originally posed two questions, and my answer to the first is I think just based on the first few months of the season that ultimately Benedict Matherin had more of an impact on his team than Andrew Nimhart did. If you're talking about do I think he improved over the course of the season, no, I really don't. You know, I think he kind of hit like a wall in February and really just didn't find any sort of way around that. And, you know, it's the kind of thing where after how good he was the first couple of months of the season, you know, it's it was pretty clear that teams made adjustments, you know, to him. And he didn't exactly do very much, if anything at all, to counter those adjustments. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think he really showed any clear growth over yeah. the course of the season. If anything, it was like his shooting regressed a little bit and he didn't figure out how to make anything else work around that. But Ultimately, I mean, this is a guy who scored almost 17 points a game on, you know, for the first part of the season, pretty decent efficiency. So right. I think ultimately I would say he was probably more impactful than Emhart, but I very much agree with you that he did not really improve over the course of the season. And Emhart did, and that's great for Emhart and a bit concerning for Matherin. So the reason why I would say Andrew Nemhart is more impactful is because of what Nemhart did on the defensive side of the ball, right? Sure. So he, he actually became the Pacers... I, I won't say stopper because I would never call a rookie a, a ball stopper on defense to a, to, a, to a degree. But he was the guy who went to go guard the other team's best perimeter option on a night-to-night basis, whether that player was playing the one or they were playing all the way up to the three. It was Andrew Nemhard's job. So you're asking a rookie to come in and essentially be one of the de facto captains of your defense, right? So you have Miles Turner, you have Isaiah Jackson, you have guys like that down low to help protect the rim. But on the perimeter, you're looking at Nemhard to take over that responsibility. And while some of the metrics wouldn't say that Nemhard did a spectacular job in doing so, we kind of know how fuzzy defensive metrics can be to begin with. But by the tape, I think he actually kept up with a lot of different guys. And, and he kept up with them in a way that I wouldn't expect a rookie perimeter defender to keep up with them. So you throw in the amount of responsibility he had on defense, and then you factor in as a point guard or as a primary or a worst secondary ball handler, the, the offensive responsibilities that he has on his plate to not just hit some open jump shots, not to just space the floor for others, not to just move without the ball, but to operate on the ball, play a heavy dose of pick and roll, keep the ball moving within the offense and it help make your other teammates better, not just make yourself better. So because of that role and responsibility on both sides of the ball, whereas to Matherin, Matherin had some moments where he created some shots for himself. I'm not going to act like he he didn't get any isolation buckets or, or at all because he did, but primarily was an off-ball player who, to me, did not progress defensively and he did not progress as a playmaker. And then you throw in what you said, the regression of some of the shooting statistics on the year. I can't look at Matherin and hold him in the highest regard along with some of these names like a Nemhard, like a Keegan Murray, like a Walker Kessler, Jalen Williams, who they either were consistent the entire way through the season or they did, by my estimation, improve and get better in important areas of their game. And so that's why I had Andrew Nemhard sixth 
and Benedict Mather in seventh because I actually felt, along with one of my mentors in this game, Coach David Thorpe, he also made the argument for Nemhard. He actually had Nemhard on his first team, which I thought about for a second, but I wanted to give it to Ivy. But he he said months ago that he thought Nemhard was the best rookie on the Indiana Pacers. And now that I've had time to reflect and watch some more of the tape back, I, I, I agree with Coach Thorpe. I think Andrew Nemhard was the best rookie on the Pacers this year. So we've talked mostly about him in sort of negative reflection of other players that we've talked about on these leaderboards. So let's at least spend some time, you know, talking about the positives with Benedict Matherin. I mean, you know, this is a guy who ultimately did finish the season second among rookies in scoring, you know, his efficiency certainly tailed off as the season went along, but you know, he was still solid, you know, solidly average, you know, 56.6% true shooting percentage. He was, you know, a very valuable offensive off-ball player. And, you know, there were some concerns, certainly. And, you know, his he fell off at the wrong time, certainly, in terms of, you know, potentially earning a spot on your first team. You know, having a rough stretch towards the end of the season doesn't work as well for these sorts of rankings as, you know, being really hot at the beginning of the season. But to be fair to him, I mean, he had a spectacular first couple months of the year. And even when he, you know, started falling off offensively, you know, again, he still did end the year as a 17 point per game scorer on, you know, average to above average efficiency. So, you know, granted, some guys clearly climbed above him on your rookie ladder, but, you know, him ending up at seventh is, you know, still even honor. still, yeah, even yep. still, he's someone who had a very, very solid rookie season. And I wrote, I wrote very positive words about him all year long when for multiple rookie rank columns, I had him at number two in those very rankings. And Benedict Mathurin had a better year than, than I expected, certainly, right? When, when he came in and was drafted, I did not expect him to be putting up 17 points per game as a rookie on the shooting splits, e- even these shooting splits, right? 43% from the field, 32% from three, 83% from the line. Like, I, I didn't expect those things. So... By my estimation, those first few months that he had, Nick, maybe they put him to me on such a high trajectory to where I just, I came back and I kept wanting more and I kept wanting more. And because he didn't keep hitting highs as a rookie, maybe I let that get to me a little bit and he dropped down a little too low for me. But at the very least, we can take away that this guy's going to be a stud in the NBA for, for a long time, right? His potential. I, I fully expect him to start for the Pacers next year. Not only do I expect him to start, I expect him to be a better defender because now he's had a year under his belt. He has the physical tools and the speed, the, the, the quickness, the lateral mobility. He has the tools to do it. And I think he will. And then we know how lethal he can be as an off ball shooter. And we saw him be a go-to isolation, take over the game type of shot maker at Arizona in college during a sophomore season. So that part of his game, he's still trying to fit into the NBA game during his rookie year. But I expect his sophomore and then his junior year, I think he's going to take off as, as one of these three-level shot makers who could do a little bit of everything. And then as he gets more of those reps, as he gets the ball in his hands even more, I think we'll start to see the live dribble playmaking trend back in the direction we thought it was going to with some of the improvements he made as a sophomore at Arizona. So trust me, I, I'm I'm still all in on Benedict Mathurin. I should have been higher on him coming into the draft. I should have had him rated higher on my board. I did it. I messed up. That's on me. But at the same time, He's now given me a a baseline to where I I do expect great things from him. And just because he didn't live up to even more of the hype and surpass what he did those first few months, that doesn't mean I don't think he has one of the highest ceilings out of all the players in these rankings. 
So Ben McMatherin had a wild ride of a season in Indiana, but someone who had an even wilder ride of a season, uh, Jabari Smith Jr. of the Houston Rockets. And he is someone who went from, you know, high up on your rookie ladder to not at all in the top 10 on your rookie ladder to ultimately finishing the season at eighth on your rookie ladder. And this was a bit of a lost season for the Houston Rockets in general. And, you know, we'll see if a new coach can sort of turn things around for them next year. But with Jabari Smith Jr., I mean, for me, you know, I had some concerns about him. I had him fourth on my board, which is, you know, quite high, but also lower than I think a number of people did. You know, most people had him third, if not higher on their boards. But, you know, the concern for me was I'm not sure how well he's going to be able to finish inside the arc, but his three-point shooting and his defense are special, and he should be able to contribute as a floor spacer and defensive presence right away. And the floor spacing really wasn't there. I mean, he barely crept above 30% on the year from three-point range, but 30.7% from deep is not, I think, where anybody anticipated Jabari Smith Jr. would be in his rookie season. The defense, I mean, you know, again, pretty much all rookies struggle on defense, and he was better than many, many rookies as a defender, but this wasn't exactly a Houston Rockets team that had the most disciplined defensive schemes or, you know, consistent effort defensively. So, you know, again, a bit of a weird kind of loss season for Jabari Smith, but really the main thing for me is I was expecting him to be able to rely on that three-point shot, and he really couldn't in a kind of disappointing way. I don't want to harp too much on Jabari Smith's game because we have broken him down. We, we, we have, we've broken him down pretty well here at, at no ceilings, particularly you and I on some of these podcasts and, and in me and my rookie rank column. But what I just want to say for Jabari Smith is I just want to give him a little bit of a round of applause truly because he, he had some lows of lows during this year in a situation you referenced in Houston that from an organizational standpoint, I don't live in Houston. I'm not around that front office on a day-to-day basis, but you talk to anyone who is, they will call it a tire fire in an instant. So think about how rough that can be for a young player's development when you're throwing them into the fire already as a starter, which, oh, by the way, apparently it's a really big fire just given what's going on around the organization. And now you're expecting him to live up to the third overall pick in the NBA draft right out of the gate in his rookie year where We kind of knew some of the flaws to his game coming in. Those flaws certainly presented themselves. But I think as the year progressed, he not only accepted the challenge, but I think he rose above it. There were some real games here in in March and April where he showed us, hey, this is the type of player I can still be. I can be this guy who I was at Auburn where I can put up 20 plus points per game efficiently and I can do it because I'm six foot 10 with a high release on my jump shot and I can just shoot over anyone, right? This is the type of takeover shot maker I can be. And I still think that potential is there for him. He just really had to adjust to the NBA game in terms of the speed, the physicality, how he's adapting from a positional standpoint, where he fits in as a spot-up guy, how many more opportunities does he get? Is he getting as many of the shots or the same types of shots he got at Auburn? There were a lot of adjustments that he had to make to his game. But I think the fact that he accepted that challenge and to my estimation, he rose above those struggles. That's just enough for him to be commended. And also the fact that he played 79 games. There, there are some rookies on this list. The, the last guy I have in the ranking who we'll, we'll touch on briefly, he did not even play in 60 games. So Jabari Smith played in 79 games. He, he fought through the fire and he made it out on the other side. And now I think he knows what he has to work on going into his sophomore year. And I, I think he's going to still 
live up to a lot of the hype. I think we should uh, be on the lookout for for sophomore riser Jabari Smith Jr. And to his credit as well, I mean, you know, something that I was concerned about, certainly my, you know, concern regarding his ability to score inside the arc, a lot of it was physicality related concerns. And I mean, he basically put up the exact same rebounding numbers in Houston as he did at Auburn last year, which is really impressive given the jump in level from college basketball to the NBA. So, you know, some of those physicality concerns, I mean, he's still, you know, a bit skinnier than I think you would like him to be at his peak. And, you know, that gives him trouble against bigger centers. But ultimately, I mean, you know, the rebounding is a pretty easy way to see in the numbers that, you know, he didn't he didn't stop trying at all. You know, he was still a high effort player all year. And that was the kind of thing where, you know, it very well could have been the thing where he got, you know, a bit bullied on the boards because of his size. And instead, he actually competed quite well especially, you know, given, again, the jump in level that he took from college basketball to the NBA. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more, my friend. All right. Up next at number nine, Jalen Duran, who, you know, you mentioned the tire fire of Houston. I said last year on a podcast that the Memphis offense was a tire fire that took tires out of the fire to light other tire fires. And I don't think I was entirely wrong with that assessment, but, you know, it is telling that Jalen Duran averaged basically nine and nine this season and you know the two-man combo with him and Jaden Ivey especially down the stretch run of the season was really impressive you compare Jalen Duran throughout the season multiple times to Andre Drummond and I think that's a comparison that really makes sense especially in terms of just you know Andre Drummond was a sort of similar deal like he was the youngest guy in the NBA his rookie year and was still an absolute menace on the offensive glass because he had the body of a 28-year-old as an 18-year-old. He's an athletic freak. Yep. Yeah. And Jalen Duren is in the same boat where it's like, are you sure this guy's 18? This guy can't possibly be 18, right? It's like, no, actually, actually, he is that young, and he's still that remarkable of a physical presence. I mean, you know, Walker Kessler was more efficient offensively. I don't want to say he was the most efficient offensive player in this class, but Jalen Duren was exceptionally efficient. I mean, 66 true shooting percentage, you know, nine points, nine boards, someone who was incredibly effective as a pick-and-roll big man, and... I think he made Jaden Ivey's life a lot easier. And, you know, part of that, of course, is that Jaden Ivey really showed growth as a point guard in a way that I was hoping for. And as you mentioned, we saw from him, especially down the stretch of the season. But he did get a lot of help from having Jalen Duran to play alongside him. Yep. The, when, when you have the type of high-level play finisher that Duran is, not just somebody who can get you buckets from below the basket, but certainly above the rim, Having that verticality, that lob threat helps a point guard tremendously because it gives it gives them a bailout option, right? If Jay Nivey gets in trouble on a drive, he could just throw that ball right up there and guess who's gonna go up with two hands and slam it down. Jalen Duran, right? Incredibly high efficient, high legit legitimately great finisher around the basket. And then you throw in what he did as a rebounder. I mean, the Pistons haven't seen rookie rebounding numbers like you mentioned since since Andre Drummond, one of the comps I've used. All year long, he was a really good shot blocker. We want to see more growth from him as a defender away from the basket, right? That switchability that I think is something where if you were looking to draft him like top five, top six, where he was predicted to be at one point during the 2022 draft cycle, you want to see more of that out of him. But the fact that he was as effective as he was around the basket as a rebounder, as a play finisher, as a shot blocker, as a rim runner, as a guy who you can easily feast on in transition, like this is the type of player that I think Pistons fans wanted to see with Jalen Durr, now it's going to be really fascinating because they traded for James Wiseman and they have another big in the room. And so we're, we're going to see how that works next year. But I still think that shouldn't take away from anything that Duran did this season. I certainly don't think 
it should eat into his minutes or his role next year. I think they still need to find as many minutes as they can for Jalen Dern. Don't forget the Marvin Bagley contract extension that, you know, also is no, but you know, on a more, on a more serious note with Duran, it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, the idea of him being more switchable. And I think it's really funny that, you know, part of the concerns that we all had with Walker Kessler was that he wouldn't be able to be that kind of switchable guy. And I don't think we've seen particular evidence of him, you know, in being great on switches. Certainly he didn't get roasted the way I would have, you know, feared for him, but it's interesting how part of the sort of upside play for Duran is, you know, eventually he'll be this guy. He could be this guy who could be really effective on switches. But, you know, if we're just talking about these guys as drop guys, I mean, I'm not going to say that Jalen Duran was anywhere near as effective in a drop as Walker Kessler was, because to be clear, he wasn't right. But the idea there being that Jalen Duran actually was quite effective as a drop guy. And really the thought of him being, you know, more of a switching big is sort of, okay, this is where his potential could go, right? This is where his ceiling could end up. But if we're talking about floor, I mean, you know, there were certainly concerns that Jalen Duran, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't be as high of a motor player as he has been this season. You know, there were times at Memphis where he, you know, was trying harder than certainly some of the other guys on Memphis, but, you know, wasn't exactly full motor all the time. And, you know, he had a pretty high running motor throughout the season in Detroit. So, you know, if that was a concern, that's, I think, a concern that you can let a little bit by the wayside, because even just based on what we've seen from him as a rookie, you know, the floor for him as a lob catching, rebounding menace, you know, shot blocking presence, it's pretty high. And I think a lot higher than some people would have anticipated heading into the season. You know who was switchable on defense? The last guy I have in my rookie rank was was pretty dang switchable on defense. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. Up next at number 10, fellow British citizen Jeremy Sohan of the San Antonio Spurs. I absolutely loved what I was able to watch from Jeremy Sohan this year with the San Antonio Spurs. What a, a guy who Nick, we knew he was raw coming in, right? We knew that he didn't have the the translatable shooting stroke, right? He wasn't going to be a more traditional floor spacer for you at that forward spot. If he's going to have the ball in his hands and he's going to be this fun, unique playmaker at the forward spot, did he actually have a good enough handle to, to get downhill and get to his spots on the floor and operate as that type of player? If he's going to be this multi-versatile, multifaceted defensive piece, how many positions is he actually going to be able to guard? He's not built as strong as he's probably going to be built three, four, five years from now. How many positions can he actually handle? He kind of answered all those questions. He kind of did all of those things, except for, unfortunately, he still didn't shoot the basketball. But nevertheless, he did a little bit of everything else for that team. And some of those Spurs games where he actually did take over and, and he took social media by storm as points so hand, those were some of the most fun games I got to watch for any rookie this year period because of his creativity, because of his flair, because of his inventive nature as a passer, the angles and the windows that he was able to open up and then see through to then get the ball off of a live dribble. You don't see guys at his size at his age do some of those things, right? Like watching him handle the basketball and play a point forward position gave me flashbacks of like what we saw from Scotty Barnes last year. Like that's how fun and cool it was to see him do that while not having the same type of build right, or physical stature as a Scotty Barnes, he still got to his spots effectively. He had great footwork this year. That showed up on the defensive end where he was able to cover point guards, shooting guards, small forwards, all the way up to some power forwards. And I do still think, as I projected last year, I think as he continues to grow into his body, I think he's going to be able to guard some fives in certain laps. Like, I think we're going to look back and say, Jeremy Sohan, you are a one through five Swiss army knife on the defensive end. And so if he 
gets that jump shot to come around. If he becomes even an average spot-up shooter, right, especially when he's handling the ball at the top of the court, high pick and roll, defenders go under that screen. If he can at least knock down those shots, he's going to become so much more of a dangerous offensive threat. I get that's one of the parts of his game that needs work, but everything else seems like it's going to come together for him in some form or fashion. And if he didn't miss as many games as he did, right, if he had played more than 56 games, let's say he got up to to that 70, 72 game mark, I would have had a very strong argument, I think, to put him in the top five of my rookie rate because what he meant for that Spurs team starting as a rookie under Greg Popovich, he somehow escaped Popovich's doghouse to start as many games as he did as a rookie to the impact that he's projected to have. I feel like with more time, you you could have made an argument for him top five, top six in these rankings. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is, he's not exactly Doc Rivers level of this, but you know, as you mentioned in the piece, when was the last time Greg Popovich prioritized playing a rookie like Sohan, especially one who can't shoot yet. Right. It's like, yeah, right. you know, that says a lot in and of itself that, you know, Greg Popovich of all people and granted, you know, part of that is because these years Spurs were, you know, not exactly the same as the Spurs of, you know, 10 years ago, say, right. But even still, I mean, you know, we're talking, you know, frequently throughout this podcast of how, you know, almost all rookies struggle on defense. Almost all rookies are, you know, below average to bad on defense with very few exceptions. And Jeremy Sohan was one of those exceptions. And that's ultimately why he ended up playing as much as he did is that, you know, he was at the point where not only was he, you know, scraping by going going even on defense, but he was a plus defensively, which is extraordinarily rare for any rookie. Absolutely. You, you do not see guys who come into the NBA, let alone be good to a certain extent on defense, but also have the ability to cover as many positions on that side of the ball as he does. Like I, I wouldn't say that he was an Herb Jones level defender in his rookie season. That I, I wouldn't or say David that, Mitchell but, level. Right. Right. To, oh, okay. Nick, I, I, I will <laughs> let you, I will let you have your bone with, with Sacramento Kings. But that, the, the point is the amount of versatility he actually did show, you don't see that from rookies period. And so the fact that Jeremy someone was able to pull that off to the degree that he did absolutely loved watching him. I cannot wait to see how he continues to develop with the Spurs. So before we wrap this one up, just want to quickly read off the honorable mentions, Tari Eason of the Houston Rockets, AJ Griffin of the Atlanta Hawks, Shaden Sharp of the Portland Trailblazers, Malachi Branham also of the San Antonio Spurs and Dyson Daniels of the New Orleans Pelicans. And, you know, again, I don't want to spend too much time on these guys, but I think that that list of five names is pretty telling about this rookie class in that, you know, as you mentioned, maybe it doesn't have the star power at the top of the 2018 draft, but the 2022 draft class, you know, again, year one is way too early to sort of evaluate the futures and careers of these guys. But even if we're just talking about the 15 names that, you know, the 10 names we discussed in depth and the five names in the honorable mentions, these are guys who are probably going to be around the NBA for a very long time and yeah. contribute to their rotations in a number of different ways. And it'll be fascinating to see where it goes from here, because, again, even just with these 15 guys, we've got a fascinating, very varied and, you know, very potentially special group of rookies in the 2022 class. Did you have any major disagreements with my rookie with my final rookie ranking? Because you haven't you you we've gone through these rookie rankings each podcast around, but you haven't really said, Nate, you did something dumb here. Like, Nate, this isn't something I would have done. Like, you have any major disagreements about where I ended up? I'll admit I would have had a much bigger disagreement if you did have Jalen Williams at number one. Since you didn't, <laughs> since you didn't, I'm pretty happy with the list. I probably would have had Matherin higher than you did. I probably would have had Nemhart lower than you did, but okay. I, what if, I, what if you had Matherin in the top five over Ivy? 
because that was a big like debate point on social media. Like, what were you going to do with that fifth spot? And I think there were, there were plenty of people who felt strongly about, well, if you had Matherin up so high at some points in the year, you kind of have to have him in your top five. Which one of those two would have you had? I probably would have gone with Ivy. So it's not a major disagreement, but I would have, I would have definitely swapped Matherin and Nemhart on my list, but okay. I, I agree with your top five. So there you go. Yeah, maybe I would have had Keegan at three over Walker Kessler, but a lot of that would have been biased, so we can just throw that I, out. The I, I, legitimate, I, I, I legitimately was this close, Nick. I was this close to doing it, but I, I, I couldn't do it. All right, anything else you want to cover here before we wrap this one up? No, I just, I, I just as we're finishing up this podcast, this rookie class was absolutely awesome. It's funny how we come into certain drafts, and I think everyone had questions about, you know, who was the top prospect and would that top prospect have as high of a ceiling as some of these other mega stars that come out as a number one, two or three pick in the NBA draft. But sometimes we forget about the highs that we can have through the depth of a rookie class, right? The amount of legitimate contributors that are going to come out of this 2022 draft class. He, go down the list. You, you rattled off those five that we didn't talk about who I had as honorable mentions. I could go like five, six, seven names, even past those honorable mentions, which I did on my volume three. I really went, under the radar talking about a lot of rookies who deserved at least a little bit of love and attention. So there are a lot of guys in this class who impressed me at different points throughout the year. And I can't wait to study these guys as they go into year two, three, four and beyond of their NBA careers. All right. Well, he is Nathan Grubel. You can find him on Twitter at draft deeper, and you can of course find his written work on no ceilings, If you have not yet read the, volume four of the rookie rank please do this podcast will make a lot more sense once you actually read that article so go ahead and check that out if you have not already you can find me on twitter at nba johnson and you can find my written work on no as well if you've been enjoying the podcast please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using that's always much appreciated on our end And if you have any feedback regarding the deep dives portion of the podcast, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.